Welcome to our 74th lesson in the book of Revelation. I've entitled it, Always About the Sun. And we'll be studying Revelations chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Let's go read those now. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, for she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And we read this. It's like we've fallen off the face of the earth into Gnosticism, into mysticism. But we have not. Not at all. What it means is, we have to understand the scriptures. We have to get our meaning out of the scripture. That's why you cannot come to Revelation as an immature Christian, as, as a newbie. You must have some study behind you, especially in the Old Testament, especially in, in how to practice hermeneutics, the normative uh, historical approach so that you receive God's message out of the scripture rather than read your message into the scripture. Now this is a continuation of the two signs. Remember in earlier in chapter 12. But the emphasis here is not on the woman nor the dragon. The emphasis, as always throughout the scripture, is on the sun. So if we concentrate on the two signs, then the sun becomes a parenthesis. But in point of fact, the two signs are the parenthesis. Because what are they battling over? The sun. It's always about the sun. If we go to Hebrews chapter 1, it's always about the sun. Starting in verse 5. For to which the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our brightness is a scepter of your kingdom. And in verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will reperish, but you will remain. And to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It is always about the sun. The woman, Israel, and we explained that in our previous little lesson, is the vehicle that produces the sun, the last Adam. There's no second Adam. Second Adam implies third Adam, fourth Adam, fifth Adam. There's only the first Adam, Genesis 2 and 3, 
Then there is the last Adam, which is Jesus, the Paschal Lamb, who bore our sin on the slaughter, suffering God's wrath, was found approved, resurrected in a new body, and became the first fruit of the new covenant salvation, which was always the point of this creation. We who are saved under the new covenant administration have received only the first fruits of that salvation, namely the new nature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We have not received our new bodies, which will complete our salvation. That is yet future for all of us. Now the woman, Israel, the name itself means struggle. And we get that from Genesis 32 verses 22 through 28. And we see in the Old Testament that Israel always struggled. Now, it's not about them coming to salvation as much as it is about them struggling to produce Meshua and Satan struggling to prevent them from being the agency of his judgment. Now, it's not that Jesus is not God. He is God. That's why it's Jesus Christ, Emmanuel anointed. Christ always existed with the Father in eternity past. Our Jesus is when he took on flesh through Mary to walk the earth as man, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, to die on the staros so that he who knew no sin would become sin for us and pay the penalty for us to those who would be saved. This is the history of the Old Testament. Israel struggling, always struggling. Those who believed the true Jews against the majority who did not believe the false Jews who fell under the guy, the sway of Satan, constantly seeking to subvert and prevent Jesus coming in the flesh. And even when Jesus came in the flesh, in the Gospels, Satan is always working against him, always trying to subvert him. Even his flesh is working against him to subvert him. So this Old Testament dispensation, what we call it the law, it would be more appropriate to call it the coming Messiah. Because it is always about the coming Messiah. The fullness of time.
Now, is there a contradiction? It says he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Where do they get that terminology from? Well, it actually comes from Psalm chapter 2. And if we go there, starting in verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we get two major concepts here, the rod of iron and the potter. And the potter we're not going to cover much in this lesson. We'll pick it up in another lesson. But remember, this comes from Isaiah, but was fleshed out in, in more detail in Jeremiah. And Paul picks up this concept in Romans ch chapter 9. It shows Christ's sovereignty. It shows Christ's theocracy. Always at work. So what is this rod of iron? Because that's the only place it's found in the Old Testament. And this phrase is then picked up by John and used in Revelation. What is this rod of iron? Well, Isaiah says Jesus will, will be humble. Until well, let's go to Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him who will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth judgment. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands for his law. So Christ is the humble, the meek, the suffering slave of God. And thus that is how he came during his first advent. And that is how he is working through this period of first fruits, or as some have called the church age, the age of grace, etc. It's really the age of first fruits. He has established justice. It is based upon the ten words. Revelation is the establishment of his millennial kingdom of justice of the third age. Then he rules with the rod of iron. Now we have to understand what this means. It doesn't mean that he says, okay, now I'm in control. I'm a tyrant. I can just beat the trash out of you and break you. Because now I have control and nobody can stand against me. I mean, he could already do that if that was his desire. Obviously, he's God. He's omniscient and omnipotent. If that was actually his, his plan, his purpose, 
then why would he die? And yet that is the very charge that Satan lays against them constantly, and which the, the lost embrace and point to with glee, saying, see, he is a tyrant. We can rebel because we're for freedom, we're for liberty, we're for uh, so on and so forth. You kind of get the idea. Well, rod is used as, as a standard of measurement. And it was a very commonly understood shepherd's tool of correction. You go to Psalms 23 to read about it. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. The rod is for correction. The staff was for guidance. This is a very ancient motif. Pharaoh had the shepherd's crook in one hand and the flail, the whip, in the other hand, standing in for the shepherd's rod. Well, that's because Pharaoh was a tyrant, and he would beat the tar out of you. But the rod has another connotation, that the Pharaoh's flail, or the, the Rome's fascus, does not have. And that is, it is a standard of measure. In fact, that's what the Greek canon or canon in the English actually means, a standard of measure. And so this rod of iron is an unbuilding, uh, unbuilding unyielding standard of measure. It never changes. It is immutable. So what is this rod of iron? Well, it's the ten words. Exodus 20, 1 through 17. Uttered by the Father, thundered out from Mount Horeb across the plain, terrifying the people. So much so that they said, let us not ever hear this voice again. They needed an intermediary, an intercessory. They needed an advocate or paracletos. And they said, Moses, that's your job. You go talk to the terrifying voice and then you come and talk to us. Moses said, you know, that's God's plan. But this was the standard the canon, the measuring rod of God's holiness, the Father's holiness. And we've made this emphasis multiple times throughout our study of Revelation. That it's the ten words. You can't get salvation by keeping the ten words because you cannot keep the ten words in the flesh. You fail the first one, and the second one, and the third one. In fact, that is the point of the ten words, is to show you that you cannot keep them. You constantly fail them. And because you cannot keep them, you are condemned by them. There is no salvation through keep keeping the law. You have failed the law 
just a, just by being conceived. Psalms 51.5, you are conceived in iniquity. We are conceived in sin. We can never keep the law. And yet, this is how Christ rules his theocracy, because it is through the Father's holiness. He represents the Father. He is the very essence and image of the Father, because no one has seen the Father at any time. That's the Father's spirit. And they worship, who worship him must worship him in spirit of truth. But we can't see spirit. So we have Christ, John 1, 1 through 18. <clears throat> Thus Moses is the forerunner of Christ, the eternal advocate, or parakletos. And Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, goes into detail explaining this, that Moses was the intercessor. He was the first one, but he was the slave. He was the forerunner. Or which Christ will be the last Adam, the final administrator. In fact, he was always the rule, the ruler. Always. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He created all things in heaven and earth. It is always about him administering or ruling for the Father by sitting on the Father's throne in heaven. And so the ten words are the law, the canon or measure of the Father's holiness. Christ came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. We tend to believe and are taught that Christ came to, well, he met the law, so we don't have to be judged by the law, therefore the law no longer exists. And I can do whatever I want to because Jesus, well, he's honored bound to forgive me every time I ask. So he got to forgive me and I can do whatever I want to and go and ask him for forgiveness and, 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 and I can do whatever I want to and, oh, I'm sorry, I got caught. That is such an abomination. And it's an eisegetical approach to Scripture. When you sin willfully, there must be a cost. When you sin in ignorance, that's when that kicks in. Because we sin consistently and don't even know it. We're so ignorant. But when we go out and sin willfully, that's when you have to pay the cost. But Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17, <clears throat> Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, that's a declaratory statement of fact right there. Christ will not abolish the law. His death on the cross does not abolish the law. It fulfills the law, it meets the law, it satisfies the law. It does not abolish the law. 
I have come to fulfill them. For I truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is the basis of Christ's theocracy. This is the basis of Christ's rule. So, the law, when you're lost, stands as a measure of iron, immutable, unchangeable, condemning you because you can never meet it. Christ met it. We are covered in Christ's righteousness, those who are saved. Now, the law is our guide because it's still the standard. It's still the measure. And it's our standard of maturing in Christ. But it is always ever-present. It is not the means to salvation, but it is the standard of what salvation will produce in us. And that is the Father's holiness based on the Son. Sinners cannot gain righteousness keeping the law. Christ fulfilled the law so the saved could enter the new covenant. And it's via struggle that we do so. It's always about the struggle because the flesh never surrenders, never quits, never gives up, and will never be saved. Now the millennial kingdom will follow the Old Testament Example, the first infraction is severely punished, setting the example. Such as the one who gathered sticks on the Sabbath in Numbers 15, 32 through 36. They were not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. This gentleman was out there gathering sticks so he could light a fire and cook food for his family. He was caught gathering sticks. They brought him before Moses. Moses talked to God, and God said, Stone him. Pretty severe infraction. You never hear of it again. The first infraction is punished severely to show the seriousness of what God is saying. Subsequent violations are for us to judge our own behavior on, for us to understand the seriousness of it. And parents do this all the time when they, or should, when you make a rule the first few times it's violated, you enforce it severely with the child. As time goes on, 
that becomes less and less so. Not because the rule changed, but because you're trying to teach them to judge their own behavior, to control their own behavior. You're turning responsibility from that from you, because you've emphasized it, with the severity of your discipline, to turning it over to them, such that they must judge themselves. Now, being immature and ignorant, they're going to think, I got away with it. No, you're just building wrong character in yourself. But that's what you're doing. And it's going to be on your head to answer for that, not on the parent's head. The parents did their job. Their job is not to stand over you and beat you up every time you break a rule. In fact, that is how you train your children. As they grow into teens, you turn more and more of that self-correcting responsibility over to them because you have trained them such and you watch them build their own character. And you cry over their failings to yourself. You rejoice with them over their successes, knowing though that, like you, they're going to have sin in their character. They're going to have failings in their character. But hopefully, you have taught them that they can come before Christ and seek forgiveness, and seek growth, and seek correction, and, and, and and study in the Word because they're going to have to take what they've learned and pass that on to others, either the people around them or their own families. And so we're going to see that this example start off in severity but transition more and more to individual self-control is going to occur in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, how do we know this? Because how does the Millennial Kingdom end? And nearly absolute, complete rebellion against Christ and those who are saved. Because everyone who enters the Millennial Kingdom is saved. However, they still retain the body of flesh. And everyone who was born into the Millennial Kingdom is a sinner and must undergo salvation to be saved. And I'm sure as time goes on, there'll be fewer and fewer saved, more and more sinners. And we're going to see that occurred just like we saw in Genesis chapter 4. Whereas enemy had more children and more children, they wandered away to the land of wanderers. And when Cain killed Abel and was ousted from that society, he went to them 
and became their king and established the first government. The first ungodly government. And all governments that proceed from him are ungodly. They're allowed, and we'll cover that in the next lesson. But this rod of iron is going to be there in the millennial kingdom. And we're going to see in the beginning aspects of it that sin will be immediately punished. Let's go to Isaiah 65, 18 and 20. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I crave. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And we're talking about the millennial kingdom here. In those early stages, while Christ is guiding them through his vice regent David, resurrected King David, that guy, he's going to be emphasizing the, the the law. And so when you sin, right then, judged. Because Christ is omniscient. And the angels see everything anyway. And boom, out of there. But as time goes on, once that standard is emphasized, he pulls back. He gives you over to self-rule. Romans 1, 18 through 28. And God gave them up. He didn't quit on them, but he turned it over to them. And as the third age progresses, sinners will abound more and rebel against Christ's rule. And we're going to see that in Revelations chapter 20 when we finally get there. The rod of iron continues in the new heaven and new earth because God's holiness is immutable. We've said that several times. Let's go read it in James 1, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every complete gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There we go. There's that first fruits. There's that no variation, no shadow. No turning, immutability. That is the Father. That is the Son. That is the law. That is the measure. That is the canon. And it will be throughout eternity future. 
But in our new natures, with our new bodies, it will be the norm for us. We will rejoice in it. Our new nature wants to keep the law. He wants to grow in grace. Even now he wants to. It is the flesh that rebels. It is the flesh that is the problem. It is the flesh that is the, the harbinger of sin and, and, and seeks to cause us to stumble and fail. Now we need to understand prophetic language because we're encountering it in this, this passage here. Because in our passage, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Okay. We're talking about Israel, of course. And gave birth is past tense. Rule with a rod of iron is future tense in the same sentence and has not yet come to pass even in our own time. And yet caught, he was caught up to God, past tense, ascended, Acts chapter 1, through fled into the wilderness, the diasporia, past tense into the present tense, whereas she is a place prepared by God in which she will be nourished for 1,260 days, last half of the great tribulation still future to us. And so we have this fluid past, present, future flowing throughout this passage. And we need to be careful because this is prophetic language. Well, do we have an example of this in the scriptures? Well, we certainly do. Let's go to Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. And Christ is in Nazareth, and he's in the synagogue, and he's asked to read. He's a visitor. He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. He's an honor, so you always have the, the visitor read the scripture, stand up, and teach out of it. He asks for the scroll of Isaiah. He unfurls it, and he starts at a point of his choosing. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll and sits down. But wait, is that the complete passage? Because he's reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and we see that when we get to verse 2, that he stopped in mid-sentence. Because to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is where he stopped. But it continues, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion. Why did he stop? Because that will refer to his second coming. But that's not the point of his first coming. The point of his first coming is to proclaim 
Uangalas, the gospel, the good news. To die as the Paschal Lamb, to secure the good news, the good news of salvation. And he was saying, this is my mission. This is why I'm here. You are seeing this ancient prophecy now fulfilled right before you, living and breathing. And they immediately tried to take him on a cliff and throw him off. Because that's what sinners do. Unrepentant sinners want to destroy righteousness. They hate the canon. They hate the standard. They hate the measure because it reveals their sin as sin. They try, we try to cover our sin as righteous when it is not. And so Christ was caught up. He was ascended into heaven, Acts 1, 9 through 11. He has yet to return. I'm not saying he's coming tomorrow. I'm not saying he's coming next year. We can't say when he's coming. But these events in the great tribulation will unfold before he comes. Just like he came bodily the first time, he will come bodily the second time. The woman, true Israel, will be protected for 1,260 days. Now, we ran into this number before in Revelations 11.3 in reference to the two witnesses. There is a difference between how John uses this number, 1,260 days, in relationship to uh, God and his people, as compared to 42 months that he uses in relationship to Gentiles and sinners. And there's a specific reason for it. If you take the numbers, one, two, six, zero, and add them together, you come up with nine. Well, what is nine? It's three squared. It's the duality of three. It is God's number. It's God's completeness. Doubled or squared or emphasized that God is in control. God, protection, is ensured, both for the two witnesses that their ministry will proceed for that entire time without fail, but at the same time, the Gentiles' ministry, the sinner's ministry, the Antichrist false prophet ministry, that's the last half of the great tribulation is also proceeding apace, but it's 42 months. 4 plus 2 equals 6. The number of man is finite. It will fail. It cannot prevail. The readers of John's day would have understood this. Modern readers, obviously not. But yet, this is another way of emphasizing that concept that we miss because we don't have that background. So I try to bring it out so that we understand why these two 
numbers are different and they're purposely different and they're emphasizing godliness or, as, or usabea against ungodliness, asabea. So Bible and history is always about the sun. It's not about Israel. It's not about Satan and the dragon. It's not about the two signs. Oh, we see the signs. Oh, no, it's about the Son. It's about the S-O-N. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about what he did. It is about salvation. And as we're going to see, it is always about his government, his theocracy. And we'll cover that in our next lesson. Thank you.